Thanks to the musicians for leading us in that singing. We're continuing our series in Proverbs um, and looking tonight, as Neville has said, at justice in society. The book of Proverbs was written mostly by King Solomon. And in passing on his wisdom, he frequently addresses the reader as his son, my son. So at that time of King Solomon, the king's sons were earmarked and trained to be the next generation of rulers, of leaders of the country. So we can think of the book of Proverbs as something of a, a training manual for the next generation of leaders. It may not necessarily be in government, but in whatever capacity you may find yourself in leadership, the book of Proverbs has much to say about that. Now, last week, David Bingham reminded us that when God appeared to the newly crowned King Solomon in a dream and offered him whatever he asked, Solomon asked for a wise and discerning heart for this reason, so that he could govern God's people. So it should be no surprise that in the first part of the book of, Sol of Proverbs, Solomon stresses the value of having wisdom if you're going to govern and going to lead. At the end of uh, that introduction to uh, his book, Solomon depicts wisdom as a woman who is building her house. He says, wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. Now, what are the seven pillars in Proverbs? Well, uh, they seem to be, if you like, to hold, the pillars hold up society. Uh, they underpin society. And since the purpose of wisdom is particularly for governing society, then it seems to me that the seven pillars are the foundations which underpin a stable, well-ordered society. Society, a meaningful society, is not a free-for-all. It needs structure. It needs agreed principles. And throughout the book of Proverbs, there are certain themes, rather than presented chapter by chapter, there are certain themes that are interwoven throughout the book. And last week, David uh, Bingham looked at the fundamental importance of hard work in society. Not only hard work, but who gets rewarded for it. And across our world today, the way in which a country treats its workers and rewards its workers, and also treats those who don't work or won't work, that reflects the country's underpinning economic ideology, ranging from Marxism at one end of the spectrum to unfettered capitalism at the other. And this evening, we're looking at another pillar, an underpinning foundation, if you like, of any civilized society. We're looking at what Proverbs has to say about justice in society. The theme of justice and all the aspects of justice run throughout the book. So I plan to take a selection of the main Proverbs, which talk about different aspects of justice, and to see what are the important principles of any successful system of justice in society. One proverb which summarizes the important role of justice is found near the end in chapter 29, where 
this proverb says, by justice a king gives a country stability. So again, clearly stating that justice is one of the, the pillars, if you like, for a stable society. Now, we take it for granted today that any society must have, as one of its foundational pillars, a system of justice. And Christian writers such as C.S. Lewis have argued that that sense of justice that we have is universal and is unique to humans. Is that true? I hesitate to disagree with someone as suspicious as C.S. Lewis. But if we look at the early development of human society in the Bible, after Cain murdered his brother Abel, we see something interesting. When Cain instinctively feared he would be hunted down and killed, God's basic level of primitive protection for Cain did not come through a system of law and justice, but through an instinct more primeval than an inbuilt sense of justice. He said, anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Vengeance, seems to me, that instinct of vengeance was one of the original foundation pillars of Cain's dynasty. And his descendant, Lamech, boasted, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me, if Cain is avenged, avenged seven times, Lamech will be avenged 77 times. So the desire for vengeance in society at this particular time in history seemed to be a more basic instinct than the desire for justice. Vengeance is an emotional gut response. And the common feature of vengeance is that it returns the hurt with added value. As Lamech said, if I have killed a man for wounding me. The retribution exceeds the original hurt. In Cain's case, it was seven times more with Lamech. It was even more distorted, 77 times. Now, you've probably seen something of this if you've ever watched two children having a quarrel. It often starts with a mild insult. Before long, Worse and worse insults are angrily exchanged. Then there's a mild push, and the response is a stronger push, leading to blows and sometimes to an all-out fight. Kids don't need to be taught this. They don't need to be taught to add a little value to what they received. And when our supposed honor has been impugned by an insult, there is a basic instinct which is not satisfied by a measured return of like for like. The desire is not for justice, it is for vengeance. Now scale this up from children to society, to even governments, and to international relations. In, so in a so-called honor and shame culture, the response to one's honor being impugned is often much more severe than the original insult. The Franco-Prussian War, which was a precursor to the First World War, was really started by an insult to the honor of France. 
and at the level of international relations, even since then, consider how many wars have resulted from one nation feeling that its honour had been offended. A system based on vengeance does not lead to a stable society. It is like living in a world with permanently spiralling inflation. And it takes societies a long time to acknowledge the problem and to replace this system of spiralling vengeance with something more measured, something which removes the multiplying factor. And this is one thing which a system based on justice does. And although an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is often quoted as a very harsh response to an injury, it's actually much more civilised than permitting the initial victim to exact vengeance. That principle removes the emotional value-added nature of vengeance. And it was only after a long time in the history of the human race in the Bible, and indeed ultimately through the law of Moses, that biblical society had a system which combined the need to satisfy honour, but in a controlled, impartial, and unemotional way, which does not lead to a cycle of increasing retribution. So let me rather tentatively suggest that a sense of justice may not be something absolutely fundamental to being human, at least not to sinful human beings. The only heart in which justice resides naturally is the Lord's heart. But any civilized society will have discovered the need for justice. And the struggle for a proper system of justice is often hard won, and the result of experience and education, even over hundreds of years. It's a blessing which we should be grateful for ourselves and something we should seek to protect. Nowadays, we often hear of legal cases where someone insists that they want justice. Now, there are times we want justice and times we would rather have mercy, particularly when it comes to doing exams. But sometimes when we hear people demanding justice, we sense that they really want their enemy to be publicly condemned and shamed. And I sometimes wonder if there's a danger that a more emotional and even a media-assisted use of the judicial system encourages a bit of a slide back towards a more vengeance-based culture rather than justice. Perhaps it's more of a reflection of the fact that our society may be moving away from what is sometimes called a guilt-innocence culture towards more of an honour-shame culture. So, what is the purpose of justice? Particularly, I want to look at the purpose of justice in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, laws uh, of right behaviour are often defined in terms of a covenant. Now, that may sound rather theological, but a covenant simply defines the basis of a relationship. Consider, for example, the marriage covenant. Uh, such a covenant is not there to satisfy legalists. It's to let each party know where they stand in the relationship so that they can feel secure. So the law firstly defines the rights and responsibilities of both parties in a relationship. 
But what happens when one party breaks the covenant and does not keep their side of the bargain? Instead of ending the relationship, which it could do, there, is, there should be a process whereby the relationship can be restored. And this may involve confessing and repenting, making amends, amends even paying compensation, or even punishment. But the purpose is restorative justice with the aim of maintaining and restoring relationships. And the Old Testament law was not designed to make life difficult or legalistic. Remember the Lord Jesus summed up the Old Testament law in two commands, he said, but actually they were, if you look at them, they're designed to maintain two fundamental relationships. He said, you shall love the Lord your God. So in other words, the relationship of love with God. And secondly, he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So that's our relationship with others in society. And the whole law is designed to maintain those two relationships. But the law, as you, you'll know, not only defined what was right and wrong behavior in those relationships, it defined what was necessary to restore the relationship when it was damaged. The whole system of sacrifices, the rules for compensation, were part of the process of bringing someone back into right relationship. And when someone was in right relationship, then they were called righteous. And the process of restoring someone to right relationship is called justification. So let me try to give you a, a diagram here just to, to summarize that. So the ideal state is where people live in right, harmonious relationship as defined by some form of covenant. But what happens then when that relationship is broken, perhaps by breaking the terms of the covenant? And at that point, the system of justice kicks in to restore the person and society to right relationship. That sometimes involves punishment uh, and sometimes involves restoration. And at the end, the whole purpose is that the person is once again in right relationship with society. In that sense, a person who has served their sentence in prison and comes out is righteous. The process of justice has restored them into right relationship with society. And being a citizen of a society within a system of justice implies uh, sometimes unwritten social contract between the citizen and the state, whereby the citizen and the state both have rights and responsibilities. It's a sort of social covenant. And if we fail to meet our responsibility to the state and to our fellow citizens, then the system of justice kicks in. Likewise, if the state fails to meet its responsibility to its citizens, then the legal process should be able to cover that as well. Now, this picture of justice appears at first to be largely restorative justice, not the punitive, um, retributive justice that people often associate with the Old Testament and with God. And yet, in the Old Testament, even the death penalty was sometimes used 
In a way, you might be tempted to say, well, that's hardly restorative uh, because there's no hope of restoring the person to right relationship. But retributive justice has a valuable role in restoring the harmony of society, particularly in the face of crimes such as murder, which undermine the very foundation of a safe society. And when something like murder is dealt with by the system of justice, then it's the harmony of the society itself is restored and people feel safe again. I'm not taking any sides on the issue of um, uh, capital punishment. I'm just pointing out that in, in the Old Testament, one of its purposes was to make society feel safe and harmonious again. Now, a careful legal process should also expose in detail why a person is guilty. And there are two reasons for that. One is so that the wrongdoer themselves will recognize that what they did was wrong. It could be even better if they repent, but at least if they can admit and accept that what they did was wrong. Secondly, it's so that others who might be tempted to follow their example will see to some degree that they're on the wrong path themselves and not continue to go down that or be deterred by it. And when some people in society have been captured by a false image of being something like an, an anti-establishment hero, as sometimes happens in sub-communities, um, the public exposure and disapproval of doing wrong is a good deterrent. Uh, we've seen that uh, over the history of the Troubles, when it would have been very tempting for the government and the security forces simply to take out uh, those that they knew to be terrorists rather than arresting them and going through the expensive process of keeping them in jail. But the government had the position that bringing someone through a public legal process uh, has benefits, firstly, in exposing what the person did as wrong and as being something then to prick the bubble of those who thought they were heroic. Now, a good system of justice needs to be carefully maintained. In Proverbs, it says, by the king. But uh, in our world, it's by the government at all levels of government so that society can continue to be peaceful and harmonious. Paul writes to Timothy, as Joseph quoted in his prayer. He says, I urge, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And there are constant threats to many aspects of a system of law and justice. In the remainder of this study, I hope to show how Proverbs identifies the key elements of a system of justice and the most serious threats to justice. And there are at least four key issues, which, uh, if we have time, uh, we'll cover from Proverbs. First of all, justice should protect against the abuse of power. Secondly, what about miscarriages of justice? Thirdly, what about perverting the course of justice, as we call it? And finally, being a reliable witness 
So Proverbs has many things to say, particularly about those four aspects. So let's, let me just give you, I've just picked out a selection of some Proverbs uh, in each of these categories so that you can get a flavor of what the book of Proverbs says about it. But firstly, justice should protect against the abuse of power. And here, here are three Proverbs. In chapter 22, do not exploit the poor because they are poor, and do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. In chapter 29, if a king judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be established forever. And uh, in chapter 31, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Historically, it has been difficult for the poor and ordinary folk in society to get justice when they have a case against the wealthy and powerful. Nowadays, the wealthy and powerful tend to be very large organizations and multinational companies. Indeed, uh, some multinationals are more powerful than government. They have whole departments, legal departments, to defend themselves. And there are different reasons why the poor may not get proper justice, even in our world today. Um, one is that the wealthy and powerful can afford better lawyers. It seems unfortunate that the top lawyers demand uh, exorbitant fees, but that's life. And secondly, the poor sometimes do not know how to put their case. That's why I think the third of those proverbs says, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. In the past, when ordinary people had to present their own case in court, they were easily outsmarted. At least our system of justice today, our society has taken steps to try to avoid this by paying for legal counsel and for legal aid. So any civilized society must ensure that the poor are not deprived of justice by the rich and powerful. Now, what about the second theme, miscarriages of justice? Again, I've just selected a few uh, proverbs that deal with this. Uh, chapter 17, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. And it is not good to be partial to the wicked and so deprive the innocent of justice. Thirdly, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. And fourthly, to show partiality in judging is not good. Whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, will be cursed by peoples and denounced by nations. But it will go well with those who convict the guilty, and rich blessing will come on them. Miscarriages of justice are indeed a tragedy, and there have been several well-publicized cases where the wrong person has been jailed even in our own country, sometimes for years, and the verdict is eventually overturned or declared unsafe. But Proverbs also highlights the other side of the coin. It is equally a miscarriage of justice when the guilty are not brought to trial or when they are acquitted over legal technicalities. Often, when the, um, the wrong person is uh, convicted of a crime, 
it's because potential witnesses refuse to come forward. And there's another reason too. There's a sad aspect of some communities in our culture where it says that reporting criminals from your own community is described disparagingly as snitching. Don't know if you've ever heard anyone say that. But those who even use that language and look down on uh, reporting criminals from your own community and who say that's disloyal to pass on information, they are partly responsible for miscarriages of justice. I just mentioned, again, in the local context, there's a valuable lesson in the third of those proverbs. When justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to the evildoers. That's one purpose of a system of justice, is to, uh, to deter and to bring terror to evildoers. Now, uh, what I had in mind here is that sadly, there are known criminals who walk the streets, not just of our country, but in others too. They walk the streets freely because they cannot be touched by the law. Perhaps known drug dealers, known terrorists or gang leaders or organized crime masters. And it must be very tempting for the government forces to quietly bump off such people because they can't touch them just for the greater good of society. But in the long run, um, there is something therapeutic for society and threatening to the criminals to have at least some of those criminals dealt with in a legal and public way. And when their operations and tactics are publicly exposed and condemned by society, it sends out a message to sympathizers about what society thinks of them. It de-glamorizes the crimes and the criminal fraternity. So the deterrent power of a public legal process should not be underestimated. Justice should bring terror to other evildoers. Now, another aspect of justice is perverting the course of justice. I've picked out just two proverbs here on this one. One is, it says, the wicked accept bribes in secret to pervert the course of justice. And chapter 29, by justice a king gives a country stability, but those who give or receive bribes tear it down. So the whole question of bribes was a, a real threat uh, in Old Testament times to perverting the course of justice, and still is. And in the Old Testament, there was something worse, much worse than breaking the law, and that is breaking the legal process or perverting the course of justice. Corruption can enter the legal system itself. Uh, it, corruption can enter the business world. That's serious. But when it enters the legal process, that is even more serious. Anywhere from the police up to the judiciary and even to parliament itself. And when that happens, the very concept of justice suffers a mortal blow. And one common way of corrupting the legal system is through bribes. It can range from bribing witnesses, bribing the police, bribing government officials, or when large corporations bribe government ministers or MPs who make the law. Those are all perverting the course of justice. Now, how can you get rid of corruption in a society 
if parts of the legal system itself are corrupt. It's very difficult. There are parts of the world that uh, some of you will have visited where the police are known by everyone to be corrupt. And that leaves the law-abiding people without hope. It increases crime as criminals flourish and even prompts some people, good people, to take the law into their own hands. In our country, we should be grateful that the level of corruption is less than in those other places. But we should never take that for granted. That's why the passage which Joseph quoted in his prayer is so important. We should never become complacent in fulfilling God's command to pray for kings and for all in authority, particularly to pray that they will not become corrupt. Now, one next key theme throughout Proverbs, perhaps the main one when it comes to uh, the legal aspect of justice is being a reliable witness. Now, there were at least seven proverbs. I've picked out four in particular. An honest witness tells the truth, but a false witness tells lies. A truthful witness saves lives, but a false witness is deceitful. Thirdly, a corrupt witness mocks at justice. And finally, a false witness will perish, but a careful listener will testify successfully. Now, there, as I mentioned, there are more proverbs about good and bad witnesses than about any other aspect of the system of justice in proverbs. Why is that? Well, nowadays, we have CCT evidence, CCTV evidence. We have phone tapping. We have computer and mobile phone analysis. We have fingerprints, we have DNA, uh, and other forensic evidence. And as a result, the importance of human witnesses who testify in court is not as critical as it used to be. But before all this forensic technology was available, the outcome of legal cases uh, depended almost entirely on the witnesses. And a person's life could depend on the reliability of witnesses. It's interesting, isn't it, that one of the fundamental Ten Commandments was precisely about this. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, that is not simply telling us that we should not tell lies. It's laying the foundation for a meaningful legal system, warning people that in God's sight, one of the most important principles for society is that witnesses do not tell lies because someone's life could depend on that. Sometimes a false witness tells lies deliberately, as in a false witness is deceitful. But sometimes a person is a false witness because they are a poor or observer or a poor listener, to use the word of the last of those four proverbs, or because they are subconsciously selective in what they hear or in what they report. I mean, supposing you saw a car accident. Had you observed the speed that the car was traveling at? Had the driver signaled? Had they gone through a red light? A good witness will be observant of things like that. 
if you just wander around in a daze, you're not going to be a good witness of anything. And a false witness, the uh, uh, proverb says, will perish, but a careful listener will testify successfully. You need to report exactly what a person says, not our impression of what they were saying. But that's why it's so important to be objective as a witness and to be observant. That makes a good witness. Now, in the Old Testament, there's an infamous case of the impact of false witnesses. It's the case of Naboth and the vineyard in 1 Kings 21. Jezebel, the wicked queen, colluded with the elders of Naboth's city, and she scripted the testimony of false witnesses against Naboth. And then, having done that, she just relied on the rest of the judicial system to take its course to convict and condemn Naboth. It was another case of the power structures of the day colluding with those who managed the legal system to deny justice to the righteous. And nearly every principle in Proverbs about justice was violated in that particular case. Even in the trial of the Lord Jesus, the evil Jewish authorities, they were less competent than Jezebel. They failed to get their false witnesses to agree. Some of the false witnesses may have been deliberate liars, while others may just have not been careful listeners to the Lord's teaching. Now, I just wanted to end with a final proverb for all of us. And this is my favorite proverb probably in the whole book. It says, in a lawsuit, the first to speak seems right until someone comes forward and cross-examines. You may have seen uh, some of the popular movies that there are, which are about a court case. They track a single trial where at first you think the accused is definitely guilty. But as the testimony and evidence is cross-examined and probed, it gradually becomes clear that the truth is different and that an innocent person has been accused. And it's very satisfying to see someone uh, as a result of a careful cross-examination being exonerated. A courtroom is a good place to listen to all the evidence in an unemotional environment. Social media is uh, the antithesis of that. Courtrooms are unemotional and should be. And they're good places to cross-examine witnesses, to hear all sides of the argument, ignoring public opinion, and this is the important point, before coming to any judgment. And courts of law have learned the importance of this. But I just wanted to end with this because it applies, I think, to all of us. We would all do well to learn the lesson ourselves. Say someone approaches you with a complaint about somebody else's behavior. Perhaps in work, they have a complaint about the boss, and you hear what they're saying, and you, you almost feel their outrage at it, and you say, you have a very good point. Or it can happen in a church, maybe somebody comes to you and complains about, you hear how the elders treated me, or treated so-and-so, and you hear their side of the story, and you feel uh, you share some of their uh, outrage against that. It's so easy to make a judgment 
before the person is cross-examined, before you hear all, the, all sides of the case. And it's so easy to give support without listening to both sides. If someone does come to you with a complaint about someone else, they probably genuinely believe that their story is the only story. But the other people at fault, uh, so, sorry, they, they believe that it is the only story. And it's really your responsibility before you make any judgment yourself to cross-examine them and perhaps to say to them, well, I can see the point you're making, but before I consider making any sort of judgment myself in my own mind, Proverbs tells me that to suspend judgment until I hear all the facts from both sides. So you can ask, would you be happy for me to ask the other person about their perspective on the problem and then come back to you with questions about what you've just said. If we adopted that approach, then I think a lot of complaints would not snowball into uh, groups of discontented people who only know one side of the story. And that shows Christian maturity to be able to do that. So just to summarize then, justice is a vital pillar of any stable, civilized society. But it is difficult to achieve and difficult to maintain. And we should pray hard for all those whose job is to ensure that we have a fair system of justice which restores relationship in society. We should pray for our police. We should pray for the judges, the barristers who put the case, uh, but particularly for judges who have to make uh, judgments. Also, we should pray for Parliament who makes the law that they will not be corrupt and that they will be fair, that they will listen to all sides of the argument. And we should pray for government and government ministers and those who implement the laws. And the reason, as uh, Joseph quoted, and as First Timothy says, so that we will be able to live quiet lives in godliness and holiness. Let's just bring our thoughts together to a close as we pray. Let's pray. Our Father, we first want to thank you that in our society we have a system of justice that has been developed and tried and tested over centuries and is less corrupt and more fair than some other unfortunate parts of our world. We do pray for our own government and for all those who are part of the process of justice, and the system of justice. We pray that they would have good, balanced judgment. We pray that they would not be corrupted by bribes, by public pressure, by threats, or even by their own personal desire to carry favor uh, with those who would uh, seek different outcomes. So we pray, as your word tells us, for our own government. We also pray for other countries across the world where corruption has got a hold of society and their legal process. We pray you would raise up leaders who would work genuinely towards getting rid of corruption. And Father, we pray for ourselves as we sometimes have to make judgments day by day about other people, about other situations. Help us 
to be completely fair. Help us, even in talking with one another, to be careful and true and reliable witnesses, not to be subjective, not to show favoritism, not to give only one side a distorted account of the case, but to be completely fair and objective. We pray that your word would strengthen us to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.